Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. In this episode, the first episode of season two, thank you for joining us, by the way. I'll be talking to Yuval Noah Harari, who scarcely needs an introduction, but, you know, do do introductions, don't you? Because otherwise people will just be wandering onto stages or into audio spaces unannounced. And Yuval Noah Harari wrote a book called Sapiens, which was recommended to me, name drop, by Damien Hurst. And he told me about it, um, that Yuval Noah Harari's theory was that our capacity to narrativize as homo sapiens was what distinguished us from the other humanoid ape-like creatures that roamed the earth hundreds of thousands of years ago and led to our supremacy. And indeed, the book Sapiens... Uh, distells those stories along with many others his subsequent books continue on those uh, lines although sometimes they're a little dystopic you know with the advance of technology I hope you'll enjoy the conversation that Yuval and I had about power the organization of power the potential for change prior to the interview we'd just done a talk together at a school in South London and I was very mindful that we were talking in front of an audience of hundreds of kids many of whom were concerned about his visions for a future in which many of the jobs that they would be uh, anticipating would be taken by machines it's an interesting chat i hope you enjoy it trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that's, route yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Yuval, thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. Yeah, it's good to be here again. Since we last spoke, uh, your life has changed. I would, I don't know, has your life changed? Certainly from the perspective <laughs> of another person it's changed because your books have become much more popular. Yeah, we are now like traveling all over the world. Uh, we have... You know, a bit less time to ourselves, a bit less time to do research. Uh, but, you know, it's good when your work is appreciated, so I don't complain. When you say we, you mean you uh, and your husband? Yeah, me Itzik. and my husband, uh, Itzik, who is like, you know, the genius uh, behind the scenes. How do you uh, mean? Are you nick his ideas? Um, I mean that, you know, lots of people write good books that nobody ever heard about. So, you know, I just know how to write the books. But to actually get them to people, I mean, you don't want just to speak up. You also want to be heard. And it's a different talent to, uh, to be able to reach a, a wide audience mm. than just to come up with these interesting ideas. What decisions do you think Itzik has made that have meant that your ideas have been more popular? Um, I don't know. Fire our first uh, agent who did a <laughs> terrible job and find much better agents. Mm. And, uh, you know, in, in insist on getting the right contacts and, and the right events. Like, you know, a, a journey like this to, 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 to the UK, we get so many invitations. So, you know, choosing to uh, do a podcast with you and not with, you know, 50 other potential. Uh, it's it's not, it's the not right my choice. decision. I don't know how to make these choices. I basically just would say yes to everything and would have no life at all. <laughs> you would just... <laughs> lay supine and allow all opportunity to rain on you like wine um, that's one way of describing it I just I'm, I'm not very good in you know um, uh, negotiating and, and making all these kinds of practical decisions so in a sense a relationship is a whole and you contribute some qualities to the relationship your husband 
contributes others and yeah. the relationship can be seen as a sort of a, an ecology that comprises mm-hmm. you both. And, you know, it's a very, very old model uh, to combine the family unit with the kind of economic unit. So a thousand years ago, maybe we would have had a herd of goats together or a, a wheat field together. And now we do books and, and publications together. Perhaps it's, uh, in fact, a, an older and more natural model than the extraction of the professional from the familial, would mm-hmm. you say? Um, it's different. You know, it, it has its advantages and disadvantages, but uh, it's, it's a quite a common model still and, and quite effective. Yes, it seems to be working for you, certainly. Yuval, I'd like to mention uh, that we've just come from a school, the Lillian Bailey School, doing an event where I interviewed you in front of uh, a group of young people. Really, I felt I saw my role more as a facilitator and occasional MC rather than interrogator because mm-hmm. it felt like it was a very good opportunity for the young people to be heard. What did you think? I know the quality of the questions. We've both agreed we were strong. Mm-hmm. But what did you think of the general tone? What did you pick up from the young mm. people about their concerns? Yeah, they were very concerned. Um, I was struck by, by, by the first question uh, that was, you know, about the, the useless class. Mm. And somebody saying, but wait, there is a useless class already. It's not uh, a, a forecast for 20 or 30 years from now. There are people who are viewed or even view themselves as useless as outside the system uh, right now. Um, so this was, you know, something very sad to hear but mm. i think very true certainly very true so in a sense that sort of was a, a evidence of the kind of awareness of young people before you went on like one of my concerns was um you know like because your latest book lessons uh, what's the name of it 21, 21 lessons for the 21st century um because this book is to some degree and 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 uh, uh, Homodeus to a point also focused on the impact of technological advance on the way we organise society and and you know as the, the the first questioner highlighted the creation or not creation but augmentation of uh, the useless class which I'm already thinking of creating a political movement called the useless class <laughs> <laughs> yeah it sounds to me like it's got sort of a punkish kind of sexiness to it you, mm. we are the useless class. Um, maybe it's Roald Dahl. I don't know. It sounds like something from Matilda. Um, like, but like, what I feel um, uh, when uh, you know, like, uh, when we spoke before, Yuval, my concern was, oh, like, let's not say anything that's going to startle them. But they are already startled. Yeah, I mean, I think that they are more startled than, than many of the adults because they will have to live with the consequences. Mm. Uh, they hopefully will still be around in 2050, 2060, 2080. And they have to take very seriously these possibilities. You know, if you are 60 years old, so it's interesting to think about the world of the late 21st century, but you're unlikely to actually be there. But if you are now, say, 16 years old, hopefully you will still be around even in the early 22nd century. Why would you consider to be... like Because there is such diversity in your work now, anthropology, speculation, philosophy, ethics, sort of a multidisciplinarian approach, something that you sort of spoke about again in our talk earlier. 
What do you now consider to be your role? Because it almost mm. becomes, like, as you said, it's not a prophecy. It's not a prophecy that we're going to create this huge, uh, useless class of people that don't have jobs. What do you see your role as? Do you see, do you see it simply, are you documenting information? Are you warning? What do you see is your function? What is your intention? I try to bring clarity to people. Right? This is now how... Not just me, but like my entire team is defining our mission, that this is what we try to bring people, clarity. Because you have this enormous flooding of information and misinformation and fake news and even true news, but just too much, then to make it very clear to people what are the most important challenges, what are the most important questions. Uh, you look at the political debates, and I'm struck again and again Uh, by the fact that almost all over the world, the political debates are focusing on the wrong issues. Not because these issues don't exist, but simply because they are not the most important things. The most important things today in the world, you have three big challenges. It's uh, nuclear war, it's climate change, and it's technological disruption, the rise of AI and biotechnology. Let's these, these write the that down, because hold on a minute, you're saying the three most important things in the world. I'm not going to miss an opportunity to focus on that. Nuclear war... Climate change. Climate change. And technological disruption. Climate change and technological disruption. These are the big three. And we've been discussing technological disruption, the social disruption, the economic disruption, and the creation of the or augmentation of a useless class. This is mm -hmm. what we should be... So, and when, what do you think, and what is most current political discourse concerned with? Not with any of them. You know, discussions about trade agreements and trade. Brexit and immigration, mm. they are important, but they are not the most important thing. You know, we have so much energy and so much thought and time is invested in the Brexit debate. But whatever you think about Brexit, whether you're for or against it, it should be obvious to everybody, Brexit is not helping us in preventing nuclear war. It's not helping us in preventing climate change, and it's not helping us in regulating the explosive potential of AI and biotechnology. If at all, it's probably only making things more difficult. Um, and, you know, so much time is, is, is yes. focused on that. In 20 years, when we look back and ask, why didn't we stop climate change on time? Why didn't we regulate AI on time? We will say, oh, yeah, we had this Brexit thing. So we kind of spent five years of our attention on that. Do you imagine that this is because of ignorance on the part of the people that are making these decisions? Do you think it's ignorance on the part of people that are the, the general population that are speculating and concerned? Where do you think this, because uh, to me it seems like you're talking about unconsciousness, that your mission is to bring yeah. into consciousness things that are currently in the unconscious. Now, like, do you think this is, because I would say that that from, from my perspective, the conversations, the the superficial conversations that take place in the public sphere are and have always been to a degree a distraction from the yes. true machinations distraction of power. Distraction is, is the, key, the, the key concept. It's a distraction. And like all, this, all distractions really work by exploiting the weaknesses of our mind. That um, there are things that attract human attention. And they are not there is a, often a huge gap between what is important and what is attractive mm. and interesting. Mm. Um, it's, you know, to, to, to attract people's attention, you need to press certain buttons, like the fear button or the hatred button or the greed button. But um, you can do that quite easily 
and distract people from the far more important things. If you have two headlines in a newspaper, one headline is about, you know, terrorist threat. The other headline is new research on climate change indicates that blah, 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 blah. It's very obvious which newspapers most people will pick up and read. Not because terrorism is more important than climate change, but because it presses our emotional buttons far more effectively. Yes, and one might imagine that the people that decide which headlines and beyond which which headlines make the front pages, which issues make the news agenda, are not oblivious to the capacity for fearful information mm-hmm. to occupy the thoughts of most people. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a very old trick. I mean, mm. uh, politicians throughout history knew if you want to grab people's attention, press the fear button. Very simple. Yes, yes. And advertisers, primarily the sex button. Yeah. I call my penis. <laughs> no, there's like the sex button and the fear button. <laughs> like, you know, like, so if you want people to spend money, sex. If you want people to be passive or to behave in a certain way, in, often in an orderly way or sometimes in a volatile way, fear can be used as a distraction. We're dealing with kind of, I don't know, conscious forces, energetic resources. You have a sort of a mechanistic model, I know, used to, you know, we're using words like pressing buttons, that mm-hmm. you regard a human being as a kind of a mechanistic, a biomechanical object, mm-hmm. would you say? No, I mean, there, there are huge depths to, to the human being, to the human mind. But unfortunately, a lot of history happens in the shallows. Uh, there is huge depth in, in, in the human being. But if you look at most of the decisions human make, certainly in the political sphere, it's all in the shallows. How do you mean? Um, that when people... Um, well, I think how, how, to, how to phrase it... When you make a decision, an important decision in, in life, mm. people often don't stop to really try and understand why do I choose this? Yes. Where, yes. What is the source of this desire? What is the source of, of this thought? Mm. And actually, you know, you have this widespread belief in, in free will. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the voter knows best, the customer is always right, uh, fo- just follow your heart. And there are good things to say about these slogans, but they also make us extremely uncurious about the real sources of our passions and desires and decisions. Like a desire pops up in your mind and you say, well, this is, I chose it, this is my free will, so I'll just go ahead and do it. I'll just mm. follow my heart. And very often you miss the fact that this desire has been shaped whether by corporate advertisement or by political propaganda or by religious mythology and the naive belief that whatever pops up in my mind, this is just, you know, an expression of my authentic free will is very, very dangerous because this is what makes us so easy to manipulate. How do we as individuals begin to uh, acquire a different perspective on what, you suggest is deep programming that exploits mm-hmm. biochemical tendencies. Do you think that meditation can be a, a way of 
developing personal clarity in addition to education because for me information that is held entirely in the intellect often suffers from the same problems regardless mm-hmm. of from where it's housed say within a political spectrum yeah i mean th- there are many ways to really start exploring yourself ranging from different techniques of meditation to therapy to art to sports but the key thing is first of all to have the inclination, the curiosity to start digging, start exploring. Because if you go around with this kind of naive image of yourself as I, I'm the master of all my desires and choices, I'm a free citizen, I'm an authentic consumer, I just choose what I just follow my heart and, and follow my choices, then you don't even have the curiosity to, to explore these things. And it's more and more important to have this kind of curiosity in a world in which it, beca- it is becoming more and more easy to manipulate people because of advances on the one hand in brain science and biology, and on the other hand, in computer science and big data algorithms and so forth, uh, it's becoming much easier to hack human beings and to manipulate them. So the need to, you know, have this curiosity about what actually shapes my desires and my choices, it's more important than, than ever before. In the last century, the uh, Western political discourse was determined primarily between ideas of the right and left, free market versus state control, uh, different ideas around liberalism, social and otherwise. However... All these, this debate, this binary debate, assumes that the primary role of a human being is as a unit of energy, a monetizable commodity that will operate in the market. Even from a socialist perspective, mm-hmm. the human being is a, and, you know, the, the name of the English socialist party is the Labour Party. Mm. A human being is a worker. Now, given the technological disruption that you describe, is it time for human beings to begin looking at roles we can have? that extend beyond our, the contribution we may make to the economy, i.e. as workers? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, a lot of work, a flock of jobs are, are going to disappear. Some new jobs are likely to appear, <laughs> but we are not sure if, if enough, and we are not sure if people will be able to kind of retrain and reinvent themselves to fill the new jobs. So <laughs> first of all, we need to expand our, uh, our, con- our conception of what it means to be a useful member of society. There are a lot of extremely important things that people have been doing for the whole of history and which were not considered jobs, like to raise children or to uh, help build communities. And it's time that we recognize the central importance of these things, that somebody might not have, you know, a job in a factory or in an office, but he or she are still extremely important members of society. And also to go beyond that and to realize that ultimately it's not about jobs. We don't need to protect jobs. We need to protect humans in a situation in which maybe there is not enough jobs for every... There is not enough things for for people to do in the job market. This is not necessarily a crisis. This is an opportunity. If we can cheaply and easily feed and clothe and support people... Uh, based on the work of machines and computers and algorithms, this can be a wonderful opportunity 
for people to have much more time and energy to explore and develop themselves, not as cogs in an industrial production line, but as human beings. And this idea of a mechanized utopia is in fact one of the earliest socialist tropes that existed, that socialism will eventually yeah, create. Yeah, actually, something very interesting that people often miss about, you know, early socialism and Marxism and so forth is in the 20th century, certainly in places like the Soviet Union, labor was glorified. That it's, it, labor is a wonderful thing. You have all these posters of, of, of you know, heroic, labor, heroic laborers, coal miners, steel workers. But actually, the initial idea of Marxism is labor is bad. Yeah. It's painful. It's difficult. So because labor is so difficult and painful and so forth, we need to compensate the laborers properly. But in essence, labor is bad. And, you know, the very, la- the very word labor, the initial connotations was something very difficult, something very painful. Yes, and this glorification of the worker and the laborer is clearly to encourage people to work. Now, the, the, now that it will no longer be necessary to have a, a population that works for the sustenance of nations or certain economic goals, uh, it's perhaps time for us to review radically what it is we're here to do as human beings. One of the things I've been struck by uh, looking at your work as a whole, not that I'm claiming to have sort of like you know sort of a pers- <laughs> clearest perspective than you on your work, is that it's tracing human beings from very early cultures, very early societies, through the massive revolution of agriculture, through the revolution of industrialization, through the revolution of technology. Where do we go next? Where mm. are we? Now, if your work demonstrates anything, and of course it demonstrates many, it demonstrates the uh, malleability of human beings and our willingness to alter and our openness to new ideas. And it seems to me that the ideas that we need to access and um, uh, explore at this time are not ways that we can fit into these existing systems, but ways that we can make these systems serve us. By which I mean, if the power if power continues to rest with people that control industry technology algorithms then ultimately you will get an underclass but if this if this underclass or useless class is mobilized organized able to regard themselves as having a collective identity and a collective interest that transcends transcends gender nationality and race then there will be the possibility that power can be because ultimately this is about power can be asserted on the currently powerful, and we can redistribute, if not resources, then the ability to organize these systems. Because the Mm -hmm. current trend is merely an exaggeration of what has always happened. An elite will continue to control, and as people become less and less necessary, people will be disregarded. This happens already. We don't Mm -hmm. need slaves anymore. We can afford to pay them a little bit, or pay them a little bit then. Mm -hmm. So people, as always, will need to recognize common interests. So... New mythologies need to be instigated, perhaps. Yeah, and I think we need, above all, global stories because coming back to the three big problems of nuclear war and climate change and technological disruption... I've written them down. They are all global problems. It should be obvious to everybody they have only global solutions if we are to prevent climate change, or if we are to regulate artificial intelligence, it cannot be done on the level of a single nation. 
the problem I and you obviously I can't disagree, but the, 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 the challenge we have is that often these arguments are couched in the language of liberalism and are often presented by what, who we would formally consider the advocates of liberalism. Mm-hmm. Now, liberalism, you know, and hold on to your, hear me out a little bit here, yeah. has failed a huge number of people. I, mm-hmm. And I sort of see, you know, the understandable reaction, the, the reemergence of a type of nationalism, uh, sort of polarisation of politics. For me, this is an understandable rejection of the politics of the last 30 years, the failure to acknowledge the sacrifices of indigenous working class populations in the l- the last war, uh, you know, which was not just working class populations in this country, but the colonised people that, you know, like obviously, you know, everybody's affected. But what I'm I suppose I'm saying is, is I understand the emergence of a new right as a justifiable rejection of uh, liberalism, mm-hmm. because liberalism has not addressed the problems of ordinary poor people diligently mm-hmm. enough, or perhaps at all. So, how are we going to present these ideas of global, uh, glo- these globalized ideas, these global narratives, without them smacking of the liberalism that most people are currently rejecting? Um, that's going to be very difficult I did, I got, <laughs> but first of all I, I would also say that a lot of the rise of populism and, and nationalism today in the world you see it a lot in the western world that is losing its power uh, and far less in many of the developing countries which have benefited from, uh, really? from the recent trends of, of globalization and liberalization but I do agree with you that there is um, a, a core that we need we shouldn't dismiss the rise of populism and, and populism and nationalism as some kind of aberration or some kind of you know uh, 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 manipulation by by uh, by politicians. The key message I'm hearing from that is people being aware that they are left, being left behind, mm. that they are becoming irrelevant, and they want to give the system a kick before it is too late. If the, in the 20th century, the main struggle of the masses was against exploitation, you have an elite that exploits you, in the 21st century, the main struggle might be against irrelevance. You have an elite that doesn't exploit you, it doesn't need you. And a lot of the like recent upheavals, certainly in a place like Britain, like the United States, is people trying to use their political power before it's too late. And they are succeeding. Like I just came back from Silicon Valley. So, you know, now in Silicon Valley, everybody, or not everybody, but many people are asking themselves, what do the people in Kentucky think? And three years ago, they didn't ask themselves, what do the people in Kentucky think? Because nobody cares about the people in Kentucky, in in, in Silicon Valley. So in this sense, it was successful in drawing attention. Look, we are still here. Mm. We realize that we are being left behind. Again, going back, say, 100 years. So as a common person in the 1930s, uh, maybe you were exploited. Maybe you lived in much harder conditions than today, but in the 1930s, almost everywhere, as a common person, you were the hero of the future. Even if you live in a dictatorship like Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, so you look at the posters on the wall Mm. and you Mm. see these heroic steel workers in in, in heroic poses. This is the future. I'm the future. Everybody's talking about me. 
Mm. And today you have the same people, you know, looking at the posters and, and, mm. and listening to the TED Talks and to all the, the books, and they are not there. You have all these big words of uh, globalization, genetic engineering, blockchain, machine learning, and none of them is about me. Yeah. It's I'm, I'm being... I don't like it. I don't like it. And yet, and, I'm and not in this blockchain. And who knows what blockchain is, but it's not mean? about me. And, you know, people... Where's my chain? <laughs> exactly. So people kind of, it, it's kind of shouting, hey, I'm still here. I don't want to become irrelevant. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's, it's the... Even if in material terms, the mm. situation is better than in the 1930s, and this is certainly the, the true, yes. psychologically... that metric to... evaluate things for some reason if we like if we evaluate things on material terms if we choose that no, material terms are important i mean if, if you look at things like mortality of children then the fact that today your children has a much better chance of surviving to adulthood than a century ago this is very important uh if you have uh, i've got children yeah i can tell you they're annoying <laughs> okay that's a joke that's a joke hold on i've got two quite a few yeah, questions yeah. here now this here they are Whether, if you are not part of the elite, the elite, then whether you are being exploited or whether you are irrelevant, I don't like those options. I would, I would like to inc- ex- uh, increase my options. Yeah, certainly, but still, you, you, there is a big difference between exploitation and ir- irrelevance. Yes. When you're exploited, you're still powerful. You're, you're necessary. You're powerful as long as uh, to be exploited. Yeah, your but, power but, is in your exploitation. But in, in, uh, they need you. I mean, if you're exploited, for example, mm. you, can, you go on strike and, and they care about it because they need you. They need you to work in the factory or to serve yeah. in the army. When you're irrelevant, you are much less powerful. Irrelevant people can't go on strike. I mean, if they go on strike, who cares? No, you can't go on strike, but you, you do need to organize. Now, this, and this narrative, the, 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 glorific- the narrative where the worker is central because the worker is necessary, mm. this narrative is constructed not out of politeness, Uh, but merely in order to exploit the worker. And whilst you may have a personal sense of engagement of, hey, I'm like that guy with a sheaf of wheat <laughs> or holding a sickle, <laughs> ain't life grand, you still are simply a resource. Now, But uh, again, you are an important resource. Because and, and, you have purpose. You're saying on a spiritual yeah, level. No, no, no. I mean, from the p- point of view of the, of the political and economic system, You are important, yes. and the fact is they do invest in you, even if you live in a place like Nazi Germany, as long as you're not a Jew or something like that, uh, Hitler would invest in your health, in your education, would build sewage systems in in the slums because Hitler needs you eventually to work in the factory and to serve as a soldier in the Wehrmacht, otherwise Germany won't be strong so even and the also- most Within fascism, aside from the obvious uh, the things about fascism, fascism that don't need to be rehashed because they're so sort of evidently abominable, the positive thing about fascism, the idea, the idea about us uh, human beings functioning as a unit, that is not a lie. It's not an exploitation. That's not exploitative in, in the same way as a capitalist system exploits people by selling the deception. Oh, you know, why don't we work? It'll be good when really it's entirely your labor is a resource for us. In fascism, isn't there a sense that there is an earnest belief that the included group mm-hmm. are valuable? 
It's but, not insincere. You're not being duped or probably Hitler wasn't going, ha, 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 those stupid that, blonde blue eyes. <laughs> no, no, he mean, means it. It's sincere. Oh, that's a big question. I mean, it's, when you look at the fact, it's, it's really a myth. But certainly there is uh, a way... What wide... do you mean? The sincerity of fascism or... The sincerity of fascism of really caring about the individual German housewife and her children. Still just a means to mobilize a population to suit the, the needs of the powerful. In, in the end, I mean, you see it in fascism like in, in, in many other regimes. And, um, and of course, there are always the exclude, ex- excluded ones. Yes. Fascism, in order to function, fascism always needs enemies and traitors. And cross-fascism do... off my list of potential <laughs> ideas. <laughs> I mean, again, there is a lot of misunderstanding mm. about fascism, which is, I think, one of the reasons you see a re- re- resurgence mm. of certain fascist tendencies what, today in the world. Do you think one of the misunderstandings is that there's a kind of romanticism for the included group, and if you have no, enough it, dispossessed people... No, it's just people... the opposite. That I think that when we tried to... And after the Second World War, yeah. we, it, it was a central theme in every education system in the West... Uh, to warn people about fascism. But I think we, we didn't do a good enough job because we presented fascism as a kind of monster. And we vilified... Fa- I mean, we didn't explain what was attractive about it. And what was attractive about fascism is that it told people, you are, if you belong to the group, to the right group, you are the most important thing in the world. You are the most beautiful thing in the world. When people looked, you know, like in the fascist mirror in the 1930s, if a German, an Aryan looked in the mirror, he did not see a monster. He saw the most beautiful thing in the world. This yes. is why it was so attractive. Comparable Now, when- to the worker in the wheat sheaf propaganda poster, you have an identity that is meaningful to your culture. Your individual identity has value in the collective identity, whether that's you're an Aryan looking in the mirror or you're a, a communist toiling in the fields mm-hmm. or factory. You have purpose, you have meaning. This seems to be a resource that's important when organizing a society or a system. Yeah, and, and you know, it, 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 it flatters people. It, people like than, to hear uh, that they are... And also it's a sort of a human resource, isn't it? I mean, when we're looking at... See, it's difficult, isn't it, when talking about extremist ideologies such as fascism and, 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 and communism as we've experienced it, because, as you've just said, we extract, it's, we extract from... We don't include what must be attractive about it. And there yeah, is I mean, nothing wrong with people feeling purpose or valued in the collective... There is something wrong with people persecuting an outside group. Exactly, but, but, but because we made this, we wanted to warn people about fascism. We didn't, we didn't really explain what was so tempting about it. Why did people go after it? It's a bit like, you know, when, when I read Harry Potter or when I watch Star Wars or things like that, they always make the same mistake that they depict the bad guys as just terrible and ugly and repulsive. And then you're left with the sense, why would anybody follow Voldemort? Why would anybody follow Darth Vader? These guys, they are ugly, they are mean, even to their own supporters, they are mean and cruel. Mm. And then you don't understand what is seductive about the dark side. And the thing is, the dark side is very seductive because for the people in it, It's very beautiful. Yes. Again, you look in the mirror, you see the most beautiful thing in the world. This is something that, you know, traditional Christian art understood much better than modern science fiction. You mean in, that the devil would be beautiful? The devil is beautiful. This is, otherwise, who would be tempted? 
So now we, we have an entire generation that grew up with the idea of fascism is the ugliest thing in the world. Mm. And then when, when they start to adopt fascist ideas and they look in the mirror, what they see is not a monster. What they see is something very beautiful. And then they reach the conclusion, we can't be fascists. Yes, yes, I understand. When you want people to be vegetarian, it can't, you can't say bacon tastes awful. You have to go, look, bacon's great, but we just can't <laughs> eat it, okay? And the same with drugs. Look, heroin, it's a lot of fun, but just, <laughs> I'm sorry, we can't take heroin anymore. It's off the agenda. And what those things are resourced by is pleasure, Pleasure, power, these energies are attractive. Mm-hmm. All these ideologies, they move through our consciousness, no? They all have at some point interacted with human consciousness. They are an expression of our consciousness. They seem to be universals. They seem to be perennial themes that are emerging. We want to belong to the collective. We want to feel value. We want to feel purposeful. Antithetical, in fact, of the dystopia that you're describing where a useful mm-hmm. class will inflate and you know, to an unmanageable degree. Isn't it then, when we're looking at the systems that have failed and the systems that are succeeding and what we have learned and what we're beginning to understand, isn't it our obligation to begin to present alternative ideas that somehow embrace these ideas of purpose, uh, essence, and where possible, throw off the imaginary shackles of the system's pre-existing requirements, i.e. your value is as a worker. Every single one of us in this room right now is here because of our value as a worker. Mm -hmm. You, me, Jenny, every single person here is being paid to be here, right, one way or another. And like, you know, you, well, you love your, your husband. Thank God your husband's in the room. But you've already admitted he's come up with all the best ideas. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, but like none of us or like the most important things in my life are not my values as a man doing a podcast. It's my children, my mm. wife and all human beings know this, that, 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 that love is something that can be realized through work, but need not be and often isn't. Yeah. So in this, in this world where there is, you know, potentially technology is going to create a surplus of people where industrialization agriculture created a surplus of people this is stuff I'm quoting from your own books industrialization created a surplus of people people had to re-graft their identity onto different kinds of oh I'm valuable because I'm a peasant working in a field oh I'm a valuable because I'm a man working down a dock oh god now where is the value aren't we going to have to start organising societies that are not somehow parasitic on a powerful elite simply because that powerful elite isn't there anymore it's been challenged it's been brought down it's been undermined, it's been shackled. Our systems must be brought back under the control and the service of people, whether those systems are political or technological. They must again work for ordinary people. Yeah, I mean, but the greatest challenge is that this time you, you will increasingly have to deal not with a powerful human elite, but with a powerful elite of algorithms that are not human, that are probably have no consciousness, but they increasingly run the world. These algorithms may have been designed at first by humans, but then they continue to evolve and learn by themselves. They may technically still be subservient to humans, but increasingly they will make the most important decisions. And we won't even understand how and why. I'll give a concrete example because it sounds very abstract. Well, and also it's, a, it's recognizable from science fiction, this idea that ultimately we will endow machines with a consciousness that supersedes no, our own consciousness. No consciousness. It doesn't depend on machines having consciousness Intelligence, at all. I should have In- said. Intelligence, yes. And look, today, for example, it's a financial system. How many people in the world 
understand the financial system. Not Maybe much. less than 1%. But you still have some people who at least claim to understand the financial system. And you have the big bankers and the finance ministers and the, and the prime ministers. They are making the big financial decisions. Uh, but in 20 or 40 years or so, the financial system, because, again, of the increase, increasing use of AI and machine learning, it's extremely likely the financial system will be so complicated, no human being will be able to understand how the global financial system works. It will rely on algorithms, and only algorithms will be able to actually tell you what's happening now in the financial system. Mm-hmm. So we would still have a chancellor of the exchequer, you will still have uh, a, a prime minister, But what will actually happen is that an algorithm will come to the prime minister and basically tell, "Look, we are facing a financial crisis. I can't explain why because mm. you're a human being, you, you can't can understand it. And these are the three options what to do about it. I agree with you, and that does sound very sort of uh, dystopian and terrifying in one way, but in another way, people are already limited by their role. I spoke to uh, Varifakis, and he said, uh, the German Chancellor can only do what the German Chancellor does." That's mm-hmm. it. His role inhibits him. Already there is no personal freedom. Already we are servants. It seems to me that all we're discussing is the difference between a man and a, with a spear or a man with a gun or a man with a computer and a robot. That there are some... A group, control power, most people are at the bottom of the pyramid. And, and at the bottom of that pyramid, they may be being exploited or they may be irrelevant. So the thing that needs to alter is the... Uh, approach to the construction of hierarchies and systems because... Mm-hmm. You're quite right. I mean, like, I don't, in that dystopian version where the Prime Minister's sort of running around with a tea towel, tapping his fanny in wonder about what, what the algorithm wants, there is still a powerful elite that is dominating. You know, there's not that they're powerful elite are going, oh, no, the algorithm's just nicked me Ferrari. You know, like, you know there is st- it's still is in the... So the thing that needs to change is... Look, this is obviously personal for me. Everything's personal for me, you know. Everything's <laughs> personal for everyone, isn't it, ultimately? But I went to a billionaire's private island once hmm. and had some conversation about, like, um, how do we help people? And, you know, a three-letter word, T-A-X, <laughs> floated <laughs> through my mind as I sat on the island. Um, and I had this very visceral feeling, Yuval, no longer do we appeal to the powerful To, for ways, uh, for their largesse, so that they will help the powerless. From now, we tell the powerless that they must take power. But to take power, you need to understand how power works, how the system works. And one of the problems is that as the system becomes more complicated, it's more difficult, even you say taxes. What happens if money becomes less important More and more the economy is an exchange of information and not money well, like and, and economy in and then uh, how do you tax it? I mean all the traditional tax systems might become irrelevant. I mean one of the, the geniuses of, of Marx and Engels was that they were able to explain to people in a very clear way how the system actually functions because mm. if you don't understand that, you mm. cannot really. stage a revolution, for example. And the explanation that was very good in the middle, middle of the 19th century, it's no longer relevant to how the system works in the 21st century. If you don't understand how the economy, how the financial system, how the world functions, where power is, 
then you can't do much about it. You can try and stage a revolution, but you don't even understand where the real yeah. power is. Yeah, you where are attacking... the purchase is. Where the purchase is. What do we attack in order? For example... Look at what happened with Syriza and Greece. Oh, no, we've got control of Greece. You've got control of nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, like, um, so what... Um, I'm, when you're saying this, what I feel... Like, yeah, I mean... I'm, I feel that, I don't know if I'm mentally ill. It's a strong possibility that I am, <laughs> but, but like, uh, I, like, like, you know, sometimes I hear like you know one sort of sun flare throws out electronics, and now suddenly everything is disrupted, and you know. So it seems to me that what you're saying, oh yeah, this is what I wanted to tell you is that, you know, you're saying we need to understand how the system works in the way that Marxism explained. This is how the system works. This is, there is there are there are goods, there is production, there is the means of production, there is distribution, and this is no longer the case. Right? The system model. now works in a very different way because I was. Curiously, I've been listening to a lot of uh, George Orwell audio books, and it's amazing because there's these sort of huge passages where you think, "Oh my God, what incredible foresight! How amazing!" And then there's other bits you think, "Oh no, that's not how it turned out at all." Like Hitler's not yet kicked off in like the road to Wigan Pier. He's going, "I don't like the look of this Hitler bloke. I think he's going to be trouble." You think, <laughs> "Yeah, go, quick, George, do something!" You know? But then there's like a speculation about like how other things are going to pan out, and it's sort of uh, you know like the, sort of the necessity for socialism. He does point out. Out that like that socialism's requirement for mechanization and a mechanized utopia will fail and I can't help but return to something that Gandhi said prior to the Indian Revolution that throughout the British there's no point in overthrowing the British in order to simply replace them and their systems and and Gandhi failed in this respect I mean Gandhi yes. had a vision of turning India into this collection of agrarian autarkic utopias and the only thing left of Gandhi's vision in the current Indian economy is his image on these rupee notes that's the only thing left yeah. um, and this is partly because you know Gandhi's analysis uh, was inappropriate for the 20th century you couldn't I mean it's a very nice vision to have India as a collection of agrarian utopias it's just irrelevant to how the economy functions in the late 20th century but when you say functions you know functions in order to suit the needs of the powerful it would have mm-hmm. functioned pretty bloody good for most agrarian Indian villagers it just wouldn't have functioned well for the capitalist relationships that needed to be maintained whether or not it was the British in charge or the Indians that were in charge. Um, again, I, I don't know what exactly went wrong, but from the very beginning, uh, certainly Nehru and the, and the leadership did not try to implement Gandhi's vision in a serious way, largely because they also realized, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not workable. Because yeah. most people want power, ultimately. Uh, first people... of all, they want food. I mean, and they, they yeah, Nehru had food. Mm. You know, Nehru was never discussing whether or not he was going to have food. He's getting food. No, no not power. Nehru personally. The Indian people. But when, when you have, you know, you have uh, one point something billion Indians to feed, then uh, you don't have a lot of room for errors or for maneuvers in the economic field. Now, now the amazing thing is that today in India, more people die from eating too much than from eating too little. Even in India, it's not just in the West. 
Yeah. So I mean, for me, that's just a perversion. Like that's just well, that's mental. We need to. That's a, a, no, but a it glaring also means that there is enough terrible food. Terrible Yeah. And so if there's not enough, is so then we can abandon the idea that scarcity is the problem. Mm-hmm. Organisation is the problem. There's too much food here. There's not enough food over there. Why is the food not getting over there? It doesn't suit the interests of the powerful to the food for the food to go over there. How do we affect the interests of the powerful? We organise ourselves and we challenge the interests of the powerful. Who are the powerful? It's these companies here. It's ah, these governmental that, organisations that's, that's here. That's the key question. Question. To know who are the powerful, where power is, and how does it function, it's very complicated. So you I think mean, the power is concealed, true power, without getting too conspiratorial? Yeah, I mean, certainly in the modern world, for a couple of centuries, one of the main functions of power is to conceal power. There is kind of a law of history. Mm. If you don't have a lot of power, you try to exaggerate your power. If right. you have a lot of power, you try to conceal it. If you're a king in England in the 12th century, you don't have a lot of power. But you try to conceal your weakness by these extravagant displays of power. So you go with like a pile of gold on your head and you wear all these furs and pearls. And every now and then you tell people, okay, cut off his head. Uh-huh. And that makes people feel, oh, he's very powerful. But actually he's very weak. Uh, because the state is very weak. Then you move to the modern age, and leaders and governments really have enormous amounts of power, but they won't, don't want to attract too much attention to it. So, you know, they, they dress plainly, like an ordinary person. Mm. And uh, they, mm. they live in a much lower life. I mean, they don't go about telling people, okay, cut off his head. Mm, mm. Because they don't want to draw attention yes. to all that power. That's so a brilliant it's, point. it's very difficult to know where power really lies in, in the 21st century. Pageantry conceals ordinariness. Our flags, our processions, all, these, all this pageantry, all this ritual, all this ceremony helps us to believe there is a United States of America. There is an England. It's not just a sort of an economic idea and a bit of land and some powerful people <laughs> exploiting the vulnerable. It's a thing. It's a flag. There's an eagle. There's a symbol. There's a history. It's real. But bit by bit, you unpick and you unstitch and you discover there's nothing there except some powerful people exploiting some people without power. That is your America. That is your England. That is your Israel, your Saudi Arabia, all just Myths and stories so that the powerful can continue to exploit the powerlessness, whether it's a crown on a head or some stars and stripes on a flag. So first thing that people have to be disabused of is their myths of nationalism or then whatever myth it is that's no, preventing no. them from acting in their own interests. No, it, it, it's more complicated than, well, than it's that. It's more complicated than <laughs> that, but we've got to get people moving. Uh, <laughs> we ain't got time for that. Um, so again, if you, take for example the, 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 the Arab Spring. So it all started off very optimistically, like, wonderful, we have a democratic revolution of the people, the people now gain power, and it was hijacked. And the Kalashnikovs were turned in the wrong direction, and we now have a much worse situation than before. I mean, Egyptians and Syrians and people in, in, in Yemen and in Libya, and they look back and we say, this is not why we had a revolution. Something really, really failed. Yes, because I think they had no idea. The Islamic Brotherhood have an idea, whether you like the idea or you don't like the idea. This is our idea. This is how we see society. This is our mm-hmm. vision. The people that are on Twitter don't have a vision that, for society. That, that's why I think it's, it's dangerous just to go out, say, on Twitter and tell people, okay, go to the streets, take out the Kalashnikovs, fight against power. 
So it, it, you know, you, you, can ha- you can have a week of revolution, but then if you don't really understand the actual power structure, then your revolution will be hijacked mm. and directed in, 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 uh, towards goals which are not necessarily the best goals in the world. For example, like Spain in the 30s, brief flicker of anarcho-syndicalism, ultimately becomes fascism, becomes neoliberalism. Well, there are so many examples. I mean, you know, a century ago in Russia, you had the Bolshevik Revolution, and within a very short time, you had Stalin and the gulags and, and, and so forth. And, um, you know, by within two or three years, the Bolsheviks were firing on the workers and peasants that they were supposed to represent. You have the, the, the famous case of, of the Kronstadt sailors and the Kronstadt workers, which in 1917 were kind of the avant-garde of the revolution. And by the end of the revolution, the Bolshevik government was massacring the very same workers in Kronstadt, which in the beginning were the big heroes of the revolution. It depends on whether you have an optimistic perspective or not. There's some days where I feel human beings are capable of creating this utopia. I believe it. I believe that this technology can be harnessed to create a more a, a world of justice and liberty then then I'll hear like about some terrible refugee crisis in Burma and I'll think oh Jesus let's just leave it as it is now this is like, you know I don't want to, I don't want the trouble I don't want the aggravation but to return for a moment to the optimistic perspective mm-hmm. if you can identify the powerful and you can and you have a vision of a society that could be differently organized you This, for me, is two ingredients. That's a big if. I mean, if you look today at the world, what strikes me most is that nobody, as far as I can tell, nobody in either the left or the right has any serious, meaningful vision for where humanity will be in 2050. Mm. Most of what you get is nostalgic fantasies about the past. Yes. But you don't have a serious vision which takes into account AI and biotechnology and climate change and all that and, and really looks clearly at what, where can we be in 2050. I wonder which ideas are going to survive because it looks like we're already, in this conversation, we're saying, well, the idea that your value comes from your work This idea this is questionable this yeah. idea may have to go here's another idea that your identity is where you are from or where you live mm-hmm. you know like the, you know when you were in sapiens when you're talking about the sort of you know the construction of nation the construction of tribe how these ideas are held together if one way of Of changing the way that power operates is to dismantle these structures but as you have just pointed out the danger is that the thing that replaces it is, is much worse I mean um, if you look again at a place like Iraq then you would start thinking actually there are some good things about nationalism when a country loses all sense of national identity and when your your loyalty becomes just to your local group or tribe or, or ethnic community and the state as a state has no longer any any basis of, of, of national loyalty terrible things can happen I mean nationalism has done a lot of bad things but we shouldn't forget the good side of, of patriotism and nationalism which is basically it makes you care about strangers you mentioned taxes earlier I mean you Good patriots are willing to pay taxes so that complete strangers who live on the other side of the country will have education and welfare and so forth. And in many cases, nationalism helps that because it, it's, 
if you look, if you think globally, then you say it's not enough. What about the people on the other side of the border? What about the people on the other side of, of the planet? But if you look at many of the most Uh, developed societies with the best welfare systems, with the best taxation systems, you often find that they are the countries with the strongest sense of nationalism. Uh, countries like France or Sweden or Japan have a much stronger sense of national unity and national identity than countries like Congo or Somalia or Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which are just, you know, complete failed states. Yes, yes. And also have had very different narratives arriving at the point of states, particularly the African examples that carry such great post-colonial burdens mm-hmm. in that they're essentially... Def- yeah, th- there are certainly reasons why Sweden has a much stronger sense of nationalism than Congo. And these reasons have a lot to do with the history of colonialism. And the way that these African countries were established in the first place as European colonies. But the end result is that just we need to be careful about, you know, besmirching all nationalism and patriotism as a boogeyman, as a, as a bad thing. Mm. I don't want to do that. This is what I want to do <laughs> is that I want to look at the things that we discover and say, how do we optimize these discoveries? And w- when you... Uh, el- illustrate the way that early pre-agricultural systems operated, human systems, human societies, one can speculate that that is mm, organic, natural. Mm-hmm. That's what human beings will do if with, without the advent of agriculture. I'm yes. not suggesting we sort of bomb ourselves back to the Stone Age. Maybe <laughs> that will just happen on its own anyway. But what I'm saying is, is if we're looking for some truth or some essence or some guidance Ought we not be looking at this is how human beings tend to organize themselves prior to uh, economic models yeah. that bent humanity like mm-hmm. agriculture or industry or technology. So th- there are certain truths that we can use to guide us. Human beings tend to do better in communities of uh, like 100, 150 where they yeah. have as much control over their systems as possible. But then we argue that without any centralized power, there will be fractious, uh, you know, like, but that, you know, when you talk about patriotism and nationalism and people's willingness to pay tax to help another person on the other side of the country, that at some point, Yuval, it's a human resource. It's a human, human beings have love in them hmm. and they are willing to help others. Yeah. So when we're establishing systems and models, oughtn't we be looking at ways that enhance, highlight, uh, illuminate, and in, in a way make practical these essential qualities where possible? Yes, certainly. I mean, uh, uh, we cannot go back to the Stone Age. No. Uh, but we do need to go forward beyond mm. the current stage of, you know, national systems. The same kind of loyalty or even love that you feel towards your compatriots in order to flourish and even survive in the 21st century, we need to start cultivating these feelings on a global level. Yes. Otherwise, we can't really deal with issues like climate change or with the rise of artificial intelligence. It seems to me, though, there's going to have to be... A, one thing that I think Gandhi... A point that Gandhi made in that you know agrarian utopia that we discussed briefly earlier is that human beings are going to have to be willing to sacrifice their attraction to gadgets and mm. comforts on some level. You know, we, me, as an individual, I've got to be willing to go, no, I don't... I'll give it up. 
I'll give it up. I'll sacrifice comfort, uh, pleasure, privilege. I'm willing to sacrifice them as an individual. If the, the, uh, human... no, I, I think we don't need to go in a Puritan direction. If you really realize what makes you truly happy in life, uh, you don't need to make you know, painful sacrifices. If you realize that you actually are much more happy you know, having a nice evening with friends than just sitting alone in front of the computer and watching YouTube clips or something like yeah. that, then it's not a sacrifice to no. take yourself away from the screen and call some friends and get together. It is initially, though, because there is such a thing as, a, as addiction. There is such a thing yeah. as attachment. And we've become attached to many, many negative objects. We've become attached to... to technology that's not benefiting us. We've become attached to food that isn't benefiting us, types of sex, types of worldviews, perspectives. And I cannot but think that on some level this must be a spiritual transition that will have to take place on the level of the individual but mm. be encouraged more broadly. And when you talk about the scale, the, I mean the global scale, it, it sometimes seems inconceivable that change of this nature could happen. But when I look at the scope of your work and how reaching back to you know, pre-civilization, it seems not only possible, you know, relevant whether it's possible, it's, it's necessary. Yeah, I, I think it, it is possible. It's, it's not going to be easy, but it is, if, you, if you look at what we already covered, I mean, 10,000 years ago, people were loyal to a group of a hundred people they knew intimately. You were loyal to your friends and families in a small clan of a hundred people. Now people can feel loyal to a hundred million strangers. The road from feeling loyalty to a hundred relatives and friends, all the way to feeling loyal to a hundred million strangers, this is a very, very long road and we've already covered it. Now, the road from feeling loyal to 100 million strangers to feeling loyal to 8 billion strangers, this is a much, much shorter road. It's, it's certainly psychologically, it's much easier. So you have this huge amount of strangers you don't know here and this huge amount of strangers you don't know there. 100 million, 8 billion people don't think well in large numbers. It's the mm. same. So it's, again, it's, it's not easy. But I think we have already covered most of the road towards this kind of, of global uh, loyalty. I agree with you. Although there is, of course, a distinction between the conceptual and practical acceptance of groups of people. You know, I can live with the idea that we're all one global family, but perhaps I can only really cope with, you know, I, if I were to examine the number of intimate relationships I have, I bet it's about 100. I bet in many cases mm. we replicate the community values that we were biologically designed to have. Yeah, we still have, we still know intimately no more than 100 people. This did not change. But nevertheless, we have managed to build uh, functioning communities, national communities of millions of strangers. But again, this verb, functioning, uh, for me, again, is like functioning for whom? Uh, who To benefits? some extent for everybody. I mean, I pay taxes which are used to uh, build hospitals in which a complete stranger is cured from his or her disease. I pay taxes so that somebody else's kids will get some kind of education. So I, we are very far from having a completely egalitarian society. And yes, there are still power structures and hierarchies and, and a lot of exploitation and inequality. 
But, you know, compared to a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago, we have these uh, systems which do take care, which do use our, my resources to take care to some extent of complete strangers. I agree with that notion, except it's, again, in accordance with the wishes and the allocation of a centralized power system over which we have very, very limited control. Um, Yuval, we've got to wrap up this conversation mm-hmm. for a, a number of reasons. Well, only for really one reason, <laughs> because of belief of time. You have a husband. I've got a wife <laughs> and daughters. It's familial reasons. Mm. We'll continue to think about these things, won't we? I... For me, I feel you know all of us obviously have different functions in this. All of us have different roles to play, different functions, and I, I'm very grateful to you for the role that you're playing in conveying this information in in a way that is accessible and interesting, sometimes scary, but uh, ultimately optimistic. I thank you. I thank uh, your husband as well for making it populist, because otherwise I'd have ignored it. <laughs> I only like stuff that's populist. Mm. No, uh, for both of you, uh, to you in particular, obviously. Thanks very much, Yuval. Thanks for your time, mate. Thank you. Cheers.